Cyril Ramaphosa, The Path to Presidential Power, by Anthony Butler. For Anne. Preface to the Third Edition. I first considered writing about Ramaphosa more than two decades ago. My interest was less in the man himself than in the National Union of Mine Workers, or NUM, which he had helped to create. Ramaphosa was not an easy subject for a biographer. He had written little. His speeches were rarely memorable. He was personally reticent and gave few interviews. When he did talk, he was invariably unrevealing about his beliefs and opinions. As one perceptive profiler of Ramaphosa observed, the interviewer is confronted with that smile that wraps itself around his face, that conspirational baritone chuckle, and the constant engagement, masking profound reserve. Ramaphosa's attitude towards prospective biographers did not help. When I returned to the idea of writing the book 13 or 14 years ago, I went to visit him at his Santon offices to ask if he would consider assisting me. He professed to be gratified by my interest, but claimed to be far too busy to help. If only I could wait five years, he sighed, the burden of work on his shoulders would be less of an obstacle. He would be an older subject, the story of his life less complete. By then he would be only too happy to assist. I'd been told that Ramaphosa had made similar promises to previous aspirant biographers, and I indicated that I was not persuaded by them. Without a pause, Ramaphosa changed tack. He frowned with concern and told me that writing political biography is a perilous occupation. Immediately I felt alarmed. What were these hidden dangers? With worried eyes he began to relate the cautionary tale of a South African writer of his acquaintance. The young author, hurrying to arrive punctually for an interview with an extremely high-ranking ANC leader, did not have time to visit the toilet. A few minutes into the interview, he realized that he desperately needed to relieve himself. But his subject, most probably then ANC President Thabo Mbeki, had embarked on a seemingly endless narrative about his bureaucratic exploits in Lusaka in the 1980s. For many hours, despite a bursting bladder, the biographer was afraid to ask to leave the room. Suddenly Ramaphosa was grinning, but just as quickly the smile disappeared, and he was touching my sleeve conspiratorially. I'm an enigma, you know. He had read this description in a profile, and he definitely liked it. You can't write much about an enigma, he observed, unless it lets you into its secrets. He made it clear I would get nothing from him. No introductions, no personal papers, no documents, no access to police files. Changing direction once again, he floated the idea that he'd always wanted to write an autobiography. Now, I was going to ruin it all. He adopted a sorrowful expression to indicate that he was invoking my pity. At this point, he raised an eyebrow and asked what would happen if he refused to cooperate. Would I write the book anyway? A faintly sardonic expression lingered on his face. If I answered no, he could safely refuse to assist me and send me packing. Since I would be silly to answer no in such circumstances, his faint smile conveyed that I must not take offense at his question. I'm just asking in case you're not very bright, his expression seemed to imply. As one of Cyril's political associates observes, he is an actor who becomes the part he is playing, but he has always a smirk in the corner of his face, as if to say, I know I'm playing a role, and I want you to know it too. When I later secured research leave from my university to write the first edition of this book, 
I contacted Ramaphosa again in the hope that he might have changed his mind about assisting me. This time, in a Cape Town hotel, Ramaphosa was not so friendly. The temperature in the bar suddenly dropped to a cold chill. Looking up, I noticed with some disquiet that Ramaphosa's face loomed very large. His hitherto friendly eyes were now hostile. Why, he asked me, why do you have so little respect for me? Why are you doing this to me? Eyes now blazing, he continued, Why are you letting me down? I will sue you. Yes, I will have your house. Quickly, stumbling for words, I told him I did not own a house. Suddenly he looked deflated. For reasons I could not fathom, I felt ashamed of my behavior. How could I treat him so unkindly? But then he returned to charming equilibrium once again, smiling cheerfully. Instantly my spirits were raised. Why? Then, as he got up to go, he cuttingly commented that I had every right to write the book. It is your right. It is your right that we have fought for, so that you could exercise it. In retrospect, I am sure Ramaphosa experienced none of the emotions that his words and expressions led me to attribute to him. I was later to learn that he could induce emotions, happiness or sadness, relief or fear, guilt or shame, almost at will, like an experienced animal trainer assessing the temperament of a dog or a horse presented to him for the first time. He scolded me one minute and patted me on the head the next, primarily in order to observe my reactions. I was lucky he didn't give me a lump of sugar. When I next came across Ramaphosa at a Johannesburg workshop on black economic empowerment, he was back to his habitual and impenetrable charm. He wished me well with my writing and complimented me on my presentation at the workshop, but he remained implacable in his unwillingness to help me. One journalist has described Ramaphosa's almost awe-inspiring sense of self-confidence, the fact that his game-playing doesn't come from a place of weakness or insecurity. Yet any subject of a political biography in South Africa must feel some degree of vulnerability. Post-apartheid political biography is mostly presented a succession of saints. Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo, Walter Sisulu, great and tough-minded political leaders have been rendered as cuddly as teddy bears. Even a biographer writing in this sympathetic tradition has little to offer an ANC leader. Indeed, a favorable biography might be regarded as touting for office in a manner contrary to ANC convention. The most incompetent biographer, moreover, can stumble across a skeleton in a closet. Even a competent one can serve as the unknowing instrument of professional character assassins. A nervous politician always has the power to shut up shop. Given that a book of this kind relies heavily on personal recollection, the subject can quietly ask friends and acquaintances to refuse requests for interviews. Some hesitant interviewees, and more often their personal assistants, confessed to me that they were waiting for assent from Ramaphosa's office to my request for a meeting. In the end, however, almost all of those I contacted were open to conversation. Insofar as I was able to ascertain, Ramaphosa told those who asked him that it was entirely a matter for them to decide whether or not they wanted to talk to me. I have persuaded almost all of my interviewees to allow me to identify them as my sources, in part because of the cautionary lesson provided by William Gomedes' fascinating portrait of Thabo Mbeki's ANC. Gomedes' book advanced many intriguing propositions on the basis of information from anonymous sources. When critics alleged that errors were present, this anonymity made it hard for the author to rebut them persuasively. 
If readers have doubts about the truth of claims made in my book, I hope, in most circumstances at least, that they will be able to identify the sources I have used. Critics sometimes observe that biographical and fictional writers deploy common literary devices. The biography, like the modern novel that emerged alongside it, assumes that a life in the world can be ordered in a chronological plot, that the character of the subject is both knowable and autonomous, and that the biographer or author is a reliable and dispassionate informant or narrator. A biography is a story, they claim, albeit one in which the author is or should be quite strongly constrained by the facts and opinions he assembles in preparing it. I do not think there are any satisfactory remedies for these alleged weaknesses of the biographical form. Constant reminders from purportedly postmodern biographers about the unknowability and relational character of their subject serve only to irritate their readers. Books that escape entirely the confining assumptions of chronology are simply incomprehensible. My old-fashioned approach is influenced by a saying whose source I have not been able to trace. Always try to do things in chronological order. It's less confusing that way. I also agree with C.A. Latimer that a biography should record banal dates and facts. Anthony Trollope was born on the 24th of April, 1815, at 16 Keppel Street, Russell Square, London. That's how a biography should start. Even facts about a subject's birth, of course, can be few and far between in South Africa. The General Secretary of South Africa's second largest trade union federation, Zwilin Zima Vavi, to take one example, does not know when he was born. Former Presidency Director General Frank Chikani likewise observed in his 1988 autobiography that he did not know the place of his birth. His birth certificate states Soweto, but possibly with the intention to secure him rights to live in the township under Section 10.1a of the Black Urban Areas Consolidation Act of 1945. If he was born in Bushbuck Ridge in the Eastern Transvaal, which he thought he might well have been, his birth certificate would never have said so. One further convention of biographical writing that has come under postmodern fire is the pretense that the biographer himself is an objective and detached narrator, no more a part of the story than the novelist is a part of the novel. Once the reader has finished this preface, I will disappear in just this way. You cannot have Ramaphosa's life as it has been, but only as it has been interpreted by the writer. However, interpretation is the prerogative not only of the author, but also of informants, critics and readers themselves. The recollections of those who intimately know the subject, if they are available, can be the most revealing source for a biographer. The subject's relationships with others, as those perceive or recall them, allow a refractory human being to emerge. Recollections and interviews are dangerous sources, of course. The interviewer is both participant and interpreter. Some interviewees, more than a few when it comes to political biographies, deliberately spread malicious rumours designed to denigrate the subject. Others offer rose-tinted testimonials to a subject's good character. Selective recollection, whether deliberate or otherwise, is a general and inescapable reality, rather than merely a potential danger. I received unexpected guidance about research methodology from politicians I had not previously regarded as experts in the philosophical underpinnings of truth. Penwell Maduna, for example, told me you only get the right answers if you ask the right questions, but then predictably refused to answer almost all of those that I did ask. 
Macmaraj disparaged interviews while granting one and insisted that a reliable biography must draw primarily on solid documentary evidence. Maharaj illustrated his point by suggesting I peruse the historical minutes of meetings of the South African Communist Party, or SACP. SACP documents, of course, can be hard to access. Even when you can get hold of them, they cannot be taken at face value any more than the words of an interviewee. Facts do not become innocent and reliable simply because they are written down. Indeed, a cynic might observe that the SACP has usually written things down only when and because they have not been true. More than one acquaintance of mine has commented that the subject of this biography is an African born in Johannesburg's western native township and raised in Soweto. The author, by contrast, is a white European who knows little about South Africa and her people. The precise significance of this contrast is difficult to pinpoint. It is true, and a matter of concern, that historically advantaged writers and scholars have the time and resources to dominate interpretations of events that they may not very much understand. None of this, however, amounts to a compelling reason for not writing a biography such as this. To which more competent authority should one assign the preparation of a more authentic portrait of Ramaphosa? Nevertheless, it's a severe limitation of this book that I write in substantial ignorance of the circumstances in which Ramaphosa grew up, the world from which his family came, and the languages and concepts through which he has interpreted his own experiences and actions. I've tried to allow Ramaphosa's friends and foes the space to explain him in their own often inconsistent terms. I've correspondingly been sceptical about any overarching narrative that uniquely makes sense of his life. Perhaps fancifully, I hope that the diversity of opinions I present will allow readers some imaginative space in which to make a judgment of their own about the kind of political leader and human being they believe Ramaphosa to be. I'm grateful to many people who've let me share their recollections of Ramaphosa primarily in time-consuming personal interviews, and for the assistance I have received in locating and understanding written sources. In particular, I would like to thank Peter Alexander, Vic Allen, Kara Asmal, Diamond Atong, Adenya Baleni, Franz Baleni, Dennis Beckett, Paul Benjamin, Anne Bernstein, Peter Bruce, Tim Butcher, Simon Cairns, Piroshaw Kamei, Kate Carey, Irene Charnley, Frank Shikani, Seth Scooper, Dennis Davis, F.W. de Klerk, Godfrey Dederen, Tersha Stelport, Henry Dolovitz, Anton Eberhardt, Tians Ierloff, Gareth Evans, Chenuani Farisani, Don Foster, Sidney Frankel, Frenigan Walla, Bobby Godsell, Marcel Golding, Duma Kubole, Pepper Green, Carl van Holt, Bantuholomisa, Gillian Hutchings, Becky Jacobs, Mohammed Karan, Ronnie Casserles, Royal Koza, Johann Liebenberg, Oyama Mapantla, Liban Mabasa, Saki Makozoma, Ndota Madalani, Penua Maduna,
Putimahanyele, Mac Maharaj, Tom Mantata, Tabani Vincent Mapai, Irene Menno, Rick Menno, Ruth Meyer, Ishmael Macabella, Cesar Molebazzi, Ntacho Motlana, Chalema Motlanti, James Motlazzi, Rufunu Mulazzi, Mike Muller, Jay Naidu, Simpiwe Nanise, Don Ngube, Duman Glovo, Pandelani Nefolovhodwe, Christo Nell, Joel Nitsinietse, Bernard Nguepi, Butuman Tleko, Don Nickel, Martin Nickel, T.S. Nsandeni, Percy S.F. Nshingila, Pedrago Mali, Fred Paswana, Peter Paswani, Kuben Pile, Barney Pajana, Douglas Ramaphosa, Rams Ramashia, T.A. Ramutumbu, Christine Randall, Jabulani Sikakani, Hassan Solomons, Alistair Sparks, Mike Spicer, Dave Stewart, Jan Stein, Joel Strelitz, Enver Surti, Raymond Sutner, Vivian Taylor, Strike Thokwane, Clive Thompson, M.S. Chikovele, Bob Tucker, Nigel Unwin, Fanny van der Merwe, Friedrich von Selslubbert, Helbron Villacazi, Tony von Reinefeld, Patty Waltmeyer, Eddie Webster, and Griffith Zabala. Kate Carey and the late Vic Allen were especially generous informants and kind hosts. Although I do not share Allen's approach to historical analysis, his moving book on African mine workers is a model of intelligence, and the third volume is indispensable for those wanting to understand contemporary South Africa. Without this volume, I would not have been able to make any sense of Ramaphosa's role in the story of the NUM. I'm very grateful to Tenjiwe Labateki at the NUM Resources Centre for all her assistance, especially in finding photographs, and to NUM for giving permission for their use in the book. I'm also grateful to the Department of Historical Papers at the University of the Witwatersrand, the outpost of the National Archives in Cape Town, and the Maibuya Centre at the University of the Western Cape, all of which offered a professional and efficient service. Per Strand's penetrating analysis of the constitution-making process provided me with an introduction to a subject about which I initially knew little. I've made extensive use of interviews conducted by Patty Waldmeyer, Julie Fredrickser and Pedrago Malley. O'Malley's materials in particular are a treasure trove for students of the negotiations leading to the country's post-apartheid settlement. His efforts to make his material available to other researchers on the Internet have been heroic. The insights he provided me from his biography of Mac Maharaj were also valuable for the study. 
I'm indebted to Cyril Ramaphosa for not actively obstructing my research for the first edition of the biography. I'm also very pleased that he relented at a late stage to my requests for him to read the manuscript of that edition and that he was able to identify certain errors of fact. He spoke at the launch of the book at the Linda Auditorium in 2008 and identified aspects of his political formation that I had overlooked. In the years since, we have communicated quite regularly and almost amicably, and I've developed a clearer sense of his values and opinions, which informs this new edition. At the University of Cape Town and the University of the Witwatersrand, I've benefited from colleagues and students with a passion for the study of politics. I've enjoyed fascinating discussions about politics over the years with Anne Jalema, Ronald Suresh Roberts, Rob Singh, Sam Mokokeli, Rob Turrell, Howard Smith, Rob Cameron, Zwele Tujolobi, James Sanders and many others. Colin Bundy, Carter Asmal, Rupert Taylor, Lungisile Nsebeza and Chris Sanders looked at drafts of particular chapters and graced me with the benefit of their wisdom. Bridget M.P. has been a wonderful publisher. Russell Martin has always been a patient, insightful and encouraging editor. I remain grateful to my family for their continued patience in the face of what they evidently still regard as an eccentric project. Cape Town, February 2019